Did you have to develop a public persona for that, or were you already comfortable schmoozing with people? No, I had to definitely. That was something I had to learn to do, and and it came very naturally. To, what I found out is that there is no reason to fear talking about music to anyone, uh, to talk about why you love music. What I learned is is that is that all you do is talk from your heart about 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 what this has meant to me. Genius, it takes a lot to get on my show. Genius, you're probably someone we'd like to know. You're really good at stuff, you probably like to dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius, get onto my show. Howdy folks, welcome to Living with a Genius. I'm your host, Omar Crook. I have choral conductor and erstwhile composer John Alexander on the show today from Cal State Northridge to Cal State Fullerton, 45 years at the Pacific Corral. He uh, was and still is a big uh, deal in the choral community, especially in California, but really across the country and, and around the world. He's got students performing, uh, conducting, and uh, living as musicians everywhere. I love John. He was my uh, He was my Musical mentor, really. I came to Cal State Fullerton from Santa Monica College. I was 28, I think, at the time. Barely read a note of music. I didn't start till I was 25, and I really was a goof-off, so I didn't learn very quickly, frankly. Uh, but I had uh, a great talent, and John saw that and put me in solo work right away. I was not successful in the, in the beginning. As a matter of fact, the first solo experience uh, I had, we talk about uh, towards the top of our interview, my knees buckled and I nearly fainted. He was so mad at me, dress rehearsal, and man, I mean, John used to have a real uh, temper. He terrified a lot of people. He used to throw things. He used to scream. Uh, he smoked constantly around the corner. And uh, he doesn't do that anymore. He's really mellowed out. <clears throat> and we talk about that. <clears throat> Pardon me, still getting over this, this uh, little, anyway, who cares? You know what? Who cares? We all get sick. Uh, you know, we talk about the way he used to teach and how uh, he felt it became uh, ineffective. And he realized that. John is a, a man of integrity and wisdom. And uh, I admire, I really admire those those things about him. I admire the courage that it takes to talk about the fact that, hey, you know what? I, uh, you know, that wasn't a great way to behave. And he, he we talk about that. And that takes a tremendous amount of courage, and I really uh, admire that. I think I've just said the same thing twice, but that's how strongly I feel about it. John, I love you. Thank you for being on my show. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I sure did. Here's John. When my, when my daughter busts into my studio at home and start singing or whatever, I leave it on. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's part of the deal, part of the charm, right? Uh Let's see, we got that. John Alexander. Omar Crook. It's so nice to see you. It's so nice to see you. You know, um, I, I, don't, I mean, the audience probably doesn't know, but you really, for all intents and purposes, were the person who turned me into a musician in college, more than anybody, I think. Well, I love it when a former student says that. that that's one of my great prides, Well, when somebody says that. So thank you for saying that. It, it's, it's absolutely the, the, the truth. I mean, mm -hmm. you remember as well as I do when I, was, I came to Cal State Fullerton late. I, I think I was 28 and uh, barely read music at all. Certainly couldn't sight read. 
Uh, and I remember the very first uh, gig that you gave me was as a tenor soloist for the men's choir. And it was uh, uh, Beeble's Ave Maria. I had the solo, opening solo. Do you know the story, Jason? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh okay. okay. Well, so uh, I get up there, dress rehearsal in my tuxedo, no tie, two hours before the show, three hours before the show. My en entrance comes. And I, I fucked it up, like every, you know, again, for the 10th time. And I remember you walked to the piano with one finger, just banged it out right there. In front. My knees buckled. I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to faint. I don't know what I'm going to do. And uh, from that day forward, I just thought, you know, I got a, I have a, I have a gift. I have a talent. And uh, this guy's serious. So I got, I've got to get serious. And I did. I mean, I got real serious. And... Uh, you fortunately threw me a lot of bones like in those four or five years got a lot of solo work and did a lot of work with you well that's because you had a lot of talent well <laughs> and, I, and i didn't but you give know up. i mean from my side from my side the picture of what you're talking about in that i mean what's great is to see somebody with a lot of talent like you omar and to see them come in and to know that you have to do some things before you're going to be able to use that talent and to be able to by hook or crook Excuse me for using your name. Right, right. No, <laughs> I'll, take it. Crook, I'll take Getting it. you to accept that challenge and to and to do it. So sure. Um, so thank you. I've never really gotten a chance to say that. Um, I, you know, one thing I feel like. I mean, I have known you for a long time, and we've traveled together and spent a lot of time together. One thing I don't know a lot about is your your background, your your parents, your childhood. I know you're you're from New Orleans. I'm from New Orleans, yeah. That's where you were born? I was born in New Orleans. Uh, my family is a Southern family. My mother was from Alabama. My father was from Kentucky. Mm -hmm. But uh, I was born into a family of musicians. Okay. Uh, my dad was uh, one, was, was a conductor and a, and a teacher himself. Uh, he was a tenor. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and he was one of 11 children, the youngest of 11 children. My grandfather was... Uh, Hellfire and Damnation uh, missionary Baptist preacher. Uh, and that's that's even more conservative than Southern Baptist, if you've ever heard of Southern Baptist. Missionary Baptist is really, really conservative. Fire and brimstone. Fire and brimstone. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Fire and brimstone. So uh, there were 11 kids, but out of those 11 kids, uh, six of them wound up being uh, conductors. And it's it's and I, then I have all of my cousins that came out of that, and they also became conductors. So when you take the whole crew of us together in the Alexander clan, there were like twelve of us, a dozen of us that are conductors. So it's, it's like it, the Marsalis family and the Alexander family. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Hatfields and the McCoys. Yeah. So so I was born into the career, uh, um, uh, from early childhood. My first instrument was actually a violin. Uh, How we old were you when you started? I, I was four years old when I started studying violin. Wow. And I chose to do it. I asked to do it. Now, and, did your dad have okay. any trepidation about the kids getting into music? Did he push you into any other fields? There was absolutely... My, I have a brother who is also a musician, a pianist. Uh, uh, my late brother, he, uh, we lost him last year. But he was a pianist. He uh, was head of the piano department at University of Illinois for the last decades for a long most of his career mm -hmm. uh but he was a pianist and uh and i started out on violin but the thing is with uh my parents my father never pushed us in any way to become musicians he, from the earliest time i asked to do everything i was going to do 
never were we told you need to do this wow. uh, from either one of our parents because it was purely a choice. I think my dad knew that a musician's life is, isn't always a successful life. And, sure. and so for both my brother and I, we chose. My brother chose later. I chose very early. My, my brother decided not to start his piano until he was 12, I think, or something like that. Outrageous. And that was fine. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, he, he was not forced to start at six wow. years old to take piano. And about your mom? Was she a musician as well? She was... Uh, she was a musician, not a professional musician. Mm -hmm. She was a homemaker, mm -hmm. uh, but she studied music and and started a degree. But then, when we were born, she stopped. It. Sure, sure. But she was a singer all of her life. She was. Uh, she was. So a you heard soprano. it in the house too. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Now, and before we started, before I turned on the mics, we were talking about the the rigors of being a professional musician, particularly the element of uh, you know travel and being gone so much. Was that the case with your dad? Was he always traveling, or did he? No, no. My dad was actually a teacher. I mean, he. Uh, in New Orleans, uh, he was uh, he taught at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and was the choir director of the First Baptist Church in New Orleans. So, so uh, he taught theory and he taught voice, and so he was he was an educator through his life. Sure. My educational uh, tendencies in my life, I've kind of had a double career, as I think you know. I've yep. had a professional career as a conductor, and an educational career, and. And they've worked side by side. It's, it's sort of difficult to maintain two full-time careers in, sure. your, in your whole life. But but they really have complemented my work, I think, in that uh, I think the uh, – I mean, let's, let's remember the term maestro is – means you're a teacher mm -hmm. <laughs> you know not, not that 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 you are inclined to teach at right. no matter what level and i think taking that educational approach that i got from my dad into my professional life has been a very very positive uh reason i have been fortunate to be as successful as i've i i've been but sure they uh the two elements work very closely together and i would imagine cor coral conducting was a particular interest because your father was that just a direct correlation or? you know originally i didn't think i wanted to be a choral conductor mm -hmm. uh as i said i started on the violin mm -hmm. and when i was a kid uh i sang with the what was then called the columbus boy choir which then became the american boy choir it was a boarding school a music boarding school in new jersey uh i i shipped off to the north very early from uh from new orleans but uh in that experience uh it was just an extraordinary experience. You know, it's really a shame because this last year, uh, the American Boy Choir School had to close its doors for uh, financial reasons. They weren't getting the support they needed, and well, they were they were founded in the early in the late forties, I think. Mm -hmm. So it's really a, a terrible thing because what the what we got in that school at that age. Um, was something else. I mean, we were we were taught to compose. We were taught taught to conduct. Uh, we had some of the best academic training you could possibly have. When I left there to go to public school in high school, after my voice changed, uh, I skipped a grade. Because you were there was, before puberty. You were you were there as a young as a young boy, boy. I was a boy soprano. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I was actually given the role of a mall. When it was shown every year at Christmas time on sure. TV, I, I won the audition the year before. But guess what? In July, my voice changed right before the dates. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest is history. And the rest is history. <laughs> wow. But we had a, we had great experiences in that school in that we did all of the children's roles in New York. I mean, uh, uh, and 
uh, for the NBC Opera. The opera sure. then was was running every Sunday. They did NBC did these opera productions. Sure. I and, mean, did you volunteer to go? Did you ask your dad, "I want to go to this"? First of all, how did you hear about it when you were four, five, uh, six years old? My dad took me to. They were on a concert tour. Uh -huh. The boy choir. When I was in boy choir school, we traveled for like four to five months out of the year. So I learned how to travel as a professional musician at that age. Sure. Um, but the uh, the process of getting there, uh, my dad took me to a concert on a concert series where they were singing, and I told him afterwards, I said, I want to... Uh, That's the group I want to be in. I want to be in that group. And, of course, I was a violinist at the time. And I said, this, I, want to, I want to do this. And so he said, you really want to do this? And so I went and auditioned for them. And they gave me a full two-essence scholarship, and I went. How, how <laughs> so old were you at the time? Eight. Eight. You went off, eight you moved old. out of the house at eight years old. By my choice, yes. Unbelievable. By my choice, yeah. I got to go home for Thanksgiving. I got to go home for Christmas and for about three weeks in the summer because we also had a summer program. We went, The school was in Princeton, New Jersey, and the mm -hmm. summer program was in Chautauqua. But I learned to be on my own very, very early. My parents had a terrible time when I went to high school and returned home because I wouldn't listen to anything. I was I was in charge of myself at right. the time. So. Right. I don't even that, think those opportunities exist that much any, anymore. You know, a boarding school, I mean, that's the reason that? I said that I hate that that, 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 uh, that organization died because I don't think there's another boarding school right. like that where you are immersed in this and where you tour and have all these professional experiences. There's some great children's choir. I mean, the L.A. Children's Choir is right here, but it's a completely different thing. It's something, it's an after-school program. That's right. They do great work, but but what we got in, in, in that boarding school and as musicians uh, in, our, in our musical training and our personal training too of, mm -hmm. of how to take care of yourself at that age it was sure. was was an amazing experience looking back but, do you think that the education was myopic in some ways where it was was it only music or did you study other no no no, subjects? no, no. Uh, it was a full academic course we studied we took tutors with us while we were traveling on tour wow and uh, and most of our touring was set up in buses you know i mean we were on columbia artists in those days we were on the columbia artist circus going to going to towns all over you know we'd pick you're going to be in kansas and nebraska for this tour and so then you travel from town to town on their local artist series on buses and we travel and we studied in our hotel rooms and and in buses while we were going but wow. the education was obviously excellent because as yeah. i said when i got back to to real school, uh, <laughs> they didn't know what to do with me, so they just upped me a grade. <laughs> Socially, first of all, I couldn't I couldn't deal with the people I was dealing with. They had never left home before. I know. I know, felt so. the same way. Yeah, <laughs> I know. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but and it, on the on the New York thing, the and you asked me how I was going to be a choral conductor. I thought the when I really decided I wanted to be a conductor was in New York and doing Tosca. And Leontine, we were the children's course. You know, I was at, at, at one of the kids in the children's course. And you there in the Tadeum holding the candle and the whole thing. Doing all that oh, thing, right, yeah. God. But Leontine Price was making her debut in that role. Remember, I come from the South. Leontine come, uh, Price came from, uh, from Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And I was so taken by this woman. Sure, well, sure. And and in remember we're talking about the fifties too. And I mean that's and, a golden period of yeah yeah. Opera I, I, in this we're, we're talking about the fifties at this time. And I was so taken by it. and watching the conductor work with her. Do you remember who it was? I cannot remember because uh -huh. I don't. You know, I was eight years old. Sure, so of the course. name didn't. Yeah. But watching the whoever conducted that performance work with her, I thought that's what I want to do. I want to be a conductor. So that was really then, and I think I was. 
I was 10 at the time of that performance. I thought, I'm going to be a conductor. And from that day on, I wanted to be a conductor, but I thought I wanted to be at 10. an opera, I mean, an orchestra conductor that would do opera. And then I thought, okay, I'll, maybe I'll just be an opera conductor. But then I, I left the boy choir school. And Wait, hold on. I want to go back to this little moment with Leontine Price. What was yeah. it about the conductor? What was he doing with her that really turned you on so much? I think it was just hearing. Remember, I, I've, I'm only 10 years old, but yeah. my exposure to music at this time is huge. Yeah. I mean, it's because with my dad as being a musician and everything. I mean, it was. I think it was just hearing the beauty of that voice and watching. I remember that conductor's face and, and the way he was just mesmerized in watching her and being sure that he was doing everything with her and it was this this joint, yeah you know yeah. this thing that was happening that I thought what can be better you know yeah. just just really something that's but what it, that's what turns me on the most too is the co the collaborative nature of our yeah, work yeah really yeah. Is, uh, I, that's why I never picked up an, an instrument I can't stand the solitude I really just like being around other people yeah uh, well, not... you don't have solitude in an orchestra, but it's very true. Right. The, getting it, to the orchestra it, takes a lot of solitude. <laughs> getting the, that's the issue. But getting to be a conductor takes a lot of solitude, too. Right. Let me tell you, there's lots of score study <laughs> that's right. that, needs, that needs to be done in, in solitude. Sure, sure. Yeah. sure. Uh, I would imagine you started earning money of your own pretty yeah, early on. I did. I did. Uh, um, I was a union member at eight years old, remember? <laughs> so I had to change my name because the John Alexander, the tenor, already right. had the name John Alexander. So I had to become John Allen, which, which is my middle name, which I didn't like at all. But uh, but yes, I started earning money very early uh, as a kid. Uh, but then when I when I left the boy choir school and I and my parents at this time moved to Florida because the school system was better. My dad took a position in Florida because the New Orleans schools, uh, they didn't want me to, to be in at that time. He was serious. I mean, he was born and raised there too, right? I mean, In New Orleans? No, he's, he was from Kentucky. Oh, from Kentucky. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Said they that. moved yes, to New yes, Orleans. Yes. That they wanted out of Kentucky and away from the family. They moved there the day they got married. Wow. Yeah, so, wow. So they moved to New Orleans. So all I was, my brother and my sister sure. and I were all born in New Orleans. Sure. Was that hard for you to go to? I mean, for for the family to move to Florida, I I don't no, think so. You were out and about. Anyway. I don't think so. I was yeah. out and about. I mean, it was a new adventure. Mm -hmm. uh, but when we moved to Florida, uh, my dad was telling me, "Well, if you need to, if you really want to be a conductor, you really have to. You need first of all, right now, to be building your keyboard skills." I mean, he was is a very smart man, and and. I said, yes, you're right. And I had started studying piano when I was six. So I, I started the violin first, but I was studying piano mm -hmm. uh, through the process. So when I got back, I was 13, uh, and I started seriously studying keyboard. And then I decided, you know, the way I can make a living, uh, to ensure I can make a living is if I, if I uh, learn to play the organ, then I can become an organist choir director if I need to, you sure. know, financially. Sure. So I started seriously studying when I was 13, and I got my first job as an organist choir master of a church when I was 15. In Florida. A, in Florida, at a, at a pres small new Presbyterian church in Fort Lauderdale. And then, uh, and that went well, but then this Episcopal church in Pompano Beach right next door, yeah. which, which, which had a paid quartet in their choir, uh, decided they would hire me and so i moved to the episcopal church so i could have a paid for uh, quartet right so i started early i started conducting early i've been conducting choirs since i was 15 years old <laughs> and that's kind of how i wound up getting back into 
into saying, okay, I'll follow the family tradition and be a choral conductor because I got into that uh, doing those church choirs and conducting yeah. choirs again and thinking, yeah, I, it's, in, it's in my bones. You I know, mean, were it, you surprised it's family by bones. how much you enjoyed it? I mean, it sounds like you tried to test out other waters before, yeah. before it pulled you in. I would say that the family draw was just, was you know, too great. It, it just too there. And, and, I, and I, it, I was so immersed in it that it just seemed natural. Yeah, it's what you and I was building yeah. my skills as an organist mm-hmm. all the way through high school. And Did you and go to a public high school, regular high school? I went to, yeah, Pompano Beach High School. Yeah, regular public high school. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a fine school at that time, mm-hmm. really good. Uh, but the I went ahead and went to Oberlin, and I had a double major as a singer and uh, uh, I was still doing a lot of singing uh, but as a singer and an organist and and then my sophomore year they gave me the Episcopal Church in Oberlin I was became the organist choir master to that and it just kind of went from there it just kind of went from so there. I mean yeah. did you ever have a desire to be a professional singer or was that just no. something you did no I I never um, I I I did it all all the way through when I was a kid, I, mm-hmm. and, and I went on from there. But I think probably what sort of turned me off on it was my freshman year uh, at Oberlin, where my voice teacher told me uh, that I wasn't allowed to sing in the Oberlin College Choir. And I told her, I said, well, I have major choral interest here, you know, And but she insisted, her name was Ellen Rep. she insisted, no, uh, you are not to sing in the college choir, it will ruin your voice. And I think that kind of just turned me off to that. the concept. It was off of, I changed teachers, I went into, I said, I'm going to concentrate on my organ, and I changed to another teacher who was, uh, who didn't have those same philosophies but i think i think that kind of ended my singing career i yeah. think ellen rep didn't know it but she kind of ended the idea that i was ever going to be a singer oh, in some way maybe she was right i mean it all maybe worked she out was right it all <laughs> it all worked out exactly so from from oberlin you were i would imagine you were i'm i mean it, for, I, yeah how did you make the transition from oberlin into into where i went yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean yeah I, it basically when I left Oberlin, I went to Kentucky, uh, to the University of Kentucky, which was not a known music school Why? at all at that time, because Robert Fountain, who was my mentor at Oberlin, the uh, the, the choral conductor at Oberlin, uh, said, "John, if you go down here, the the dean, the person who had been the choral conductor." Uh, suddenly became the dean of the School of the Arts. They had no choral conductor for the year. He was still going to do one choir. And he called. He was a friend of Robert Fountain's. And he said, if you send me somebody really, really good uh, down here for grad study, I'm going to give him so much work to do. Uh, he'll love it. you know." And so that's what I did. And I wound up conducting the, the University Chamber Choir, the University Men's Choir. And then I started conducting the uh, Lexington Philharmonic course. Uh, for the Lexington Philharmonic. And then I got to prepare things for Max Rudolph and the Cincinnati Symphony. Wow. Got to prepare a Verdi Requiem for him. And that's how I, it was basically Kentucky, which is a really strange thing in my life. Yeah. Going to Kentucky. Back to your roots. Which back is to back, to, where, back to my parents' roots, yeah. where my grandparents lived, and going back to University of Kentucky. That really got me into the choral orchestral literature, which sort of took me back to the roots of where I started with the idea of opera and orchestra, yeah. and I thought, and that's where I really, uh, I, I really didn't. My goal was never to be an organist. Mm-hmm. You couldn't 
take an undergraduate and conduct it, you have to have an instrument. And mm. so I was following my father's advice, build your keyboard skills. But the, um, the, the great thing that happened to me there was that I started getting all of this orchestral experience. I started doing serious study in orchestral conducting mm -hmm. outside of my program. Uh, and that's really what got me what got me started into the career that I wound up with, with which is uh, basically uh, dealing with the choral orchestral works and making that my specialty. Now, had the opportunity uh, uh, arisen to study more opera and conduct more opera, do you think that your career would have gone that way, or would you? do you think you would have always veered back to the choral No, I think repertoire? it could have gone that way because I loved it. But it just, it, it, the opportunities were opening up to me right. so quickly. Right. And... And I loved it. I mean, it's I, as I said, I have choral music in my in my blood, and uh, the fam the family blood runs in choral music. Mm -hmm. And I I love working with text. I love opera, but I love working with the variety of text you get in choral music. Mm -hmm. uh, I love poetry. Uh, I think matching uh, uh, excellent poetry to uh, uh, matching it to music mm -hmm. is just the ultimate art form to me. I and mean, I, I mean, I and, know you as a composer too, which is yeah. something that, is that something that you wish you had pursued more or no? It's something, you know, I, I told you, I, I said I studied, con they taught us the beginnings of composition all the way back when I was a kid. So, mm -hmm. and I took some comp composition in college. It was something I was always interested in. People told me, I remember my composition teacher in my doctoral studies I was doing, he said, you need to become a composer. You need. But it's, it's not something that really, uh, um, that I really wanted to move into. And I'll tell you, part of it is the issue of communication. The, the art of composition is a solitary art. Mm -hmm. You are there with the poetry, with the music, creating in a space, and, and you want it absolutely soundproof, and you want it, don't want anyone to bother you. And I love the field I came into because it's a communicative field. Mm -hmm. And I find the rehearsal and the teaching process even a greater experience than the final performance. Mm -hmm. To me, that is what what I, what I treasure most in life is being able to get to provide something for students that will improve them and to give them to try to give whatever insights I can mm -hmm. into how the art can change your life. And composing requires somebody else to do that. The, I mean, I, I, my, I think composers are the greatest people in the world. And I have, throughout my life, I pri prided myself in, uh, in the number of American composers, for instance, that I've commissioned. And, mm -hmm. and I mean, the new Tekeli Symphony that I just did uh, two years ago, the, uh, um, the new uh, choral opera that I commissioned from Jake Heggie, mm -hmm. uh, that trying out a new art form to bring choral music closer to opera. Sure. Uh, the Radio Hour, which I think is just a fantastic work. And, and I recorded all of Jake Heggie's choral music uh, two years ago mm -hmm. on, on Delos. But I did the same thing with Frank Kelly. I started him. I loved Frank's work, mm -hmm. uh, but he was known in the wind band field originally. Uh, oh, was it the piece that, that he wrote for Carl St. Clair? Was that one of his? That was the very first choral piece that he wrote. Was it? Star it was, it it's called starring... There Will Be Rest. There Will Be Rest. There Will oh, Be Rest, yeah. God. And, and 
at that time, uh, Frank was had become he was known in the wind world, and then he became the uh, composer in residence for the Pacific Symphony with Carl St. Clair, and. I thought his orchestration was just phenomenal. I, I thought this man is so good and mm -hmm. just wonderful. And I was listening to his wind writing and I thought he has never written for the voice. He needs to write a choral composition. So all the time that he was at, uh, with the, with the PSO, with the Pacific Symphony, I kept saying, I want you to write choral music for me. He said, no, I don't know anything about it. I can't do it. You know, I said, no, write choral music. You know, And so I finally convinced them. I said, okay, I'm going to just ask you to write. I'm going to commission you to write a six, seven-minute a cappella choral piece. Do it, Frank. Right. He said, okay, I'll do it. I'll yeah. do it. And so the outcome of that was this piece called There Will Be Rest. Yeah. I was uh, so lucky to and, be in the choir to sing that yeah, the first and, time. And Carl St. Clair... Uh, son, uh, young son died in a tragic uh, drowning accident mm -hmm. uh, during the time that Frank was writing it, and so Frank and I decided that that it should be dedicated to the memory of Cole St. Clair. But that piece, which was Frank's very first choral piece, became the biggest selling a cappella American octavo that uh, the next year when we published it in my series and it was the biggest seller i mean he's really really talented right and so since then yeah i have commissioned several other things you were there him. at the beginning for eric as well yeah yeah mm -hmm. and and then finally i got him to write a choral symphony mm -hmm. uh two years ago uh the shore which is just phenomenal and mm -hmm. uh and it's going to get its new york premiere this spring i'm going to go to it uh uh david hayes and the new york choral society are going to premiered at Carnegie this spring. Uh, yeah, but Eric, talking about Eric Whitaker, Eric Whitaker, uh, actually, I, I believe he called me first and said, I, or wrote me a note, I can't remember what, but this is before Eric was famous, of sure. course. This was when Eric, Eric was a kid, mm -hmm. uh, just just beginning his career, already proving to be very talented, but just beginning getting his career. But, but he wrote me a note or something, and he had just heard... Uh, the Pacific Crowl in the recording, mm -hmm. I believe on on KUSC or something on a recording, and so he wrote it and said, "Wow, wow, I love that choir." And so, so we met, and and that wound up with Eric becoming my composer in residence. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, so it was very early on, as I said before, he got yeah. married. But so it's been a long association with yeah, Eric, I thought, and, well, and what a genius uh, Eric is! Yeah. yeah, what a genius he is! Yeah, yeah I mean, really, yeah, he's he's yeah. he's, he's, he's elevated I think the art form and brought it into mainstream more than anybody has in decades we all need to learn from Eric and what you can how important it is Eric is is through the way he markets things and the way and the creativity he uses he's bringing he brings classical music to such a large group of people he's a real teacher mm -hmm. in the way in in that I mean in the people that he has been able to uh, to affect in a, such a positive way right. uh, through what he's done, and it's it's his genius of his marketing genius and just his originality, not just when he sets pen to paper, mm -hmm. but in how he wants to how he wants music to happen. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 really wonderful, and I and and it's something that we all need to learn from Eric in the potential we have if we. If, as a conductor, the, the potential of educating an, an audience, and I don't mean educating in the traditional sense of academia, 
but edu- but educating an office through inspiring them before they get into the concert hall mm-hmm. about what this is what this is going to be and inspiring them about the possibility of lis- how listening to this can affect you or just the and, fact that it exists i and, mean a lot of people choral, choral music is unfamiliar to millions yeah, of people yeah it's it's one of the most difficult careers in many ways from a professional standpoint mm-hmm. in that choral music is has always been regarded as a participatory art and it, and that is for good reason because it it opens the possibility for millions of people to participate in something that's musical mm-hmm. people that may have literally well, I'll say that have minimal talent maybe sure. you know or minimal experience mm-hmm. uh and and it gives them the opportunity within a group to experience creating music and so it is a wonderful participatory mm-hmm. uh, participatory art and there is that is it's one of its greatest assets at the same time in order for the true art form to have significance in the future and to build audiences for the art form there needs to be a professional side of that Mm-hmm. There needs to be a Los Angeles master crowd. You know, there needs to be something. There needs to be a Pacific crowd. Sure. There needs to be that something. That appeals to the, a larger audience. That, that will appeal to a larger audience that, can, that, that, are, that are used to hearing a professional symphony perform or used to coming to L.A. opera mm-hmm. that then can hear something at that level. The participatory art is not necessarily important how much of an audience you have there. The professional art requires an audience and the professional art then re, uh, helps people learn to listen to music not just to perform it mm-hmm. and I think listening to music needs to be as fine an experience an outstanding experience as it is to perform it right and so in in choral music part of a major part of my life is to try to has been to try to build the professional element through the education of of singers mm-hmm. and conductors mm-hmm. at the university and through building audiences for choral music I, it's sort of been my my thing to do yeah i mean <laughs> uh, i would imagine that's what uh encouraged you to participate so heavily in acda and uh, get to the top of the it's actually Course to, America. Uh, Course that America, sorry, right. yes. We uh-huh. have two different service yes. organizations mm-hmm. for choral music. Uh, ACDA basically, and, and I, yes, I've been very yes. active in ACDA. Yes. ACDA is for academia and my university work. Mm-hmm. Since you were at the university, know that I participated in ACDA. Mm-hmm. But my major work in this field has been in leadership in Course America, which is the service organization for for the choirs outside of academia for the professional choirs in the large community courses and the opera cor- the uh, opera courses mm-hmm. and the and the symphony courses sure. so it's been th- that element in trying to in trying to help professionalize the choral industry mm-hmm. uh, so that we have so I, I I believe every community deserves as fine a course as it has an orchestra and and I think that uh, um I think that's a worthy goal. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I me too. How do yeah. we do it? I mean, how well, do we do it? I mean, it seems like uh, everything's being privatized. I guess you have to go to giant corporations to get it done now. It, it seems like the government's not helping much. Yeah, it's uh, 
That's the business side of it that needs That's to... That's the business side of it that needs to grow. In fact, I was just talking with someone the other day uh, from the university talking about, you know, we need courses in these curriculums. If, 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 if you study drama, at, if, you are, if you are a theater major at the universities, very often, uh, let's use Cal State Fullerton. Sure. You came from Cal State Fullerton, and I taught there. Okay, in the theater department there, the students are taught every element of theater from the box office to costuming to building sets they have to have mm -hmm. all of this in their uh in the bag in in mm -hmm. the bag mm -hmm. and so they are quite prepared to go out into the industry and work when mm -hmm. they leave whether they are an actor on stage which may be what they came in for or whether it's within the business of of creating mm -hmm. uh building sets or uh, i mean now also building sorts of sets Everything. or being an administrator sure. or a development director mm -hmm. i mean there's so many ways that are neat that we need musicians to be covering the whole area mm -hmm. the music schools i feel are way behind in this in general is it because they fancy themselves more rarefied is it is it a an ego thing is it just a lot no i mean you know you know the difference between the theater <laughs> kids and the, and the music kids yeah. <laughs> no i think it's as much about the way the faculties look at their training i think it's a matter of of that i think theater faculties see the business more whereas music faculties uh see the importance for the business angle where it, the music faculties are a little more uh, I just want to teach this art to the student. And to keep the art alive. To keep the art alive. The and tradition. There, there's nothing wrong with that, but the, the practicality of it is that uh, that they need to understand the business of music mm -hmm. in order to uh, in order to be successful, you're right. I mean, yeah. we didn't we didn't have any of that yeah. uh, going through yeah. music school. I just interviewed a a guy named Josh Shaw last week who has an opera company named the Pacific Opera Project, and they've had some international recognition. They've been written up in opera news, and and I was really fascinated to talk to him for this very reason. He he basically told me how he started an opera company, and coming out of Cal State Fullerton, and many of my peers are very successful performers. I consider myself to be successful. I support my family and myself only in music. But I, coming out of school, had no uh, idea on how to do something like Josh did. And we all should know how to build a set and how to yeah. Yeah. set lights and how to... Well, and also to understand <clears throat> the issue of development and how you develop mm -hmm. funds. I mean, I mean, students come out that are very creative creative. I mean, let's take choral students who, for instance, could start their own groups mm -hmm. and build because you build the funding from a local element in these days. I mean, all funding is 99% of funding now is local. Right. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Right. I mean, I think even if I was just looking and going to the LA Opera tonight and just looking at the program uh, uh, this afternoon, and you will notice that the funding for LA, the LA Opera is a major international opera company, but when you look at the funding the huge percentage of it that are local foundations in LA and families, that want, yeah. and families mm -hmm. in LA mm -hmm. it's funding is local but uh, and it's not th that difficult to take the time to teach people this and to teach them how you raise funds for instance how you uh, um, how you can how you build a non how, how you even form a nonprofit corporation right how big and, of, how big of that was your job i mean how what did you end up doing a lot of that yourself no the uh i'm not the founder of pacific crown right uh, it was founded by marisa large so mm -hmm. all so the setup was done uh 
all of the organizational setup as as an amateur course and a volunteer community course had been done. Mm-hmm. So I never had to do that. And when I started it, I was just like all students that that came to me afterwards. I knew nothing about the business of music. I'll never forget uh, that I've been reminded many times that in my first interview, uh, when they were doing their conductor search now 45 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, when I started with that group, uh, they asked me, well, what do you think about your responsibility as artistic director in raising funds for the organization? And, I, and my response was, I am the artist that's supposed to select the repertoire and teach it. The board of directors is supposed to raise the fund. That's, that was my answer. Sure. And, uh, you know, Pat, and I have nothing to do with it. Well, little did I know that, <laughs> that, that, that issue would soon change because I think every artist, whether you're a conductor or what, needs to understand that that in order for our art to survive, we need to teach people the reason, help people understand the reason it's important. And it's not that just, I have a beautiful voice, so you, so you should fund me. But, you know, you really should be working funding the arts, and maybe you could do that through funding uh, right. our beautiful singing. You know? Right, 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 right. <laughs> it's, I mean, there are ways to approach it and, and to understand uh, how to do that, that we need, that I think... Uh, we need to take much more interest in. Did you have to develop a public persona for that, or were you already comfortable schmoozing with people? No, and- I had to definitely. That was something I had to learn to do, and and it came very naturally to me. What I found out is that there is no reason to fear talking about music to anyone, uh, to talk about why you love music. What I learned is is that is that all you do is talk from your heart about 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 what this has meant to me and what sure. it, and and explain an experience i had of why i love this work i'm about to conduct i want you to sponsor my beethoven misa solemnis mm-hmm. and explain to them why i love this work and when i first heard it and what it did for me and what i feel it can do to people and do for people did you ever feel and, under the gun i mean uh, you know you meet with a, a billionaire and you know that this meeting's going to make or break your season or uh, or, or no, you just did you, what you were just describing. If you raise, once you get into the issue, that you have to do it, and yeah. and, and you know in, in, because it's you, right? I mean, they're they're yeah, they need to be behind you. They need to like you, and the not just the. I've art had form. very good development directors that have taught me this this process, and and I mean, I it, thank goodness I have a large enough organization that I I never had to do it myself. Sure, uh, and I have a wonderful staff and a wonderful development staff. But what I. Uh, what I learned, and, and you know, somebody who taught me a lot was uh, Kelly Ruggiero, who is now Kelly Lucerna, I believe, who is the executive director, the president of the Long Beach Symphony. Now, mm-hmm. she was, for 10 years, she was the president of Pacific Rail, the CEO of Pacific Rail. But as she said, you have to understand that people will say no to you and that you're going to probably ask people at least before somebody says yes to you and you but you cannot take that personally it just means that it's not going to work with that person and everybody has a right to to refuse your idea and it doesn't mean that you failed either it's just not a good match Mm -hmm. but you you learn that it's not to take it personally and but you learn what you're doing is is you won't win with every student right you know some students you will never be able to to help because it just doesn't work there. Same mm-hmm. thing. The same thing works it, it, when you're raising funds or when you're going out to try to create a major gift. Mm-hmm. That so so there's no fear of it. 
I I lost the fear long ago. Yeah, long ago. If uh, you can't be fearful of it, you you have to believe in it. I mean, that that's the issue. You cannot raise funds for anything you don't believe in. You have to you have to believe if if you're raising funds for something you're doing yourself, you have to believe in yourself, mm -hmm. your talent, and what you're going to do. You can't fake it. Mm -hmm. And you have to believe in the art that you're asking asking them to uh, to propose. So you must be sure that what you choose to present is something that is worthy. Because when you try to sell it, you have to be sure and and, and sell it from your heart. Right. Do you miss yeah. it? Do you miss being out there all the time like you were a couple <laughs> years ago? Now that I'm supposedly in retirement, supposedly. <coughs> How is your retirement? What does that look like? <laughs> the. Uh, First of all, in, in, in saying, "Do I miss it?" Uh, I am. Uh, it's a, it's a, f definitely a full time job, to uh, be the artistic director of an organization like Pacific Crown, sure. and uh, and then for with everything else I do too, it's it's quite a life, and so I've done it. I have stayed with that organization longer than I mean, forty five years. It's you know I was. Ten year, uh, after my first 10 years, I remember having lunch with Danny Cariaga, uh, who was from the Los Angeles Times. And in fact, we were uh, right here at the Dorothy Chandler having lunch together. And uh, he said, John, he said, you have to, uh, for, he was a very good supporter. And, and I think that I had just done the Berlioz Requiem, my first big concert I ever conducted on the stage of the Dorothy Chandler. Did a, a Berlioz Requiem with the Pacific Symphony and uh, and Pacific Chorale, and I had and I had pulled in the Angelus Chorale, which I was conducting then here in the city. Sure. So we had this huge, monstrous Berlioz Requiem here at the uh, at the Dorothy Chandler. But I forgot where we were going with that. Do you miss it? Pardon? Do you miss? Do I miss yeah. it? Um, I would say that to do all of that, yeah, for so long, yeah, that type, that magnitude what, of work, that magnitude sure. of work that mm -hmm. never stops. Right. I think what uh, what I want in my life right now is that I can pick and choose what I'm I'm, I'm doing, and I'm finding that it's uh, there's nothing. I'm certainly going to be very busy in my life. I'm trying this fall to give myself some time like a sabbatical mm -hmm. because I haven't had any for so long but I'm finding my it's funny that you have to look at it that way yeah I mean that's funny to me that you have to call it a sabbatical it's, everybody's afraid that I'm that I'm going to die away on the vine because I'm <laughs> right. I'm so devoted to my work I mean all my friends oh right. you know are you doing okay are you doing okay <laughs> do you need some soup I'm doing just fine <laughs> I bring over a lasagna <laughs> but I think the issue the joy of the issue is that is that I can pick and choose what I want to concentrate on right now. And what I'm finding is that I have more um, invitations than I can take. And so my greatest thing right now is learning to say no, to give myself time to really do projects uh, that I want to do. But uh, I, I want, I really want to be active in trying to uh, help singers become better musicians it's something that i think i i when i when i first started teaching many years ago i i um students will t in, in fact some of them uh studied under me uh 
that are that are singing this opera course tonight and I, and I mean there's always stories people tell about when I was so mad because they weren't singing the right let's not throw stands at them. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to bring that up John <laughs> but I, over the years I softened and and learned and I, and I think when you get like that is your frustration in that I had been taught music notation from the time I was four years old sure. and I could not comprehend how anybody as a music major in college didn't have the same understanding of it that, that was I me and, I mean I remember looking at music in my 20s and I didn't even know where the vocal line went right, or where, yeah. how to read it yeah. I just didn't know how to read it and I decided ang anger was getting angry at the students because they didn't know it was not the right way and so what the thing I had to do was to accept the situation I also coming from I, I, I did my undergraduate at Oberlin I mean the students there were sure everybody was a wonderful musician I worked in the state universities uh, and I had wonderful students but they didn't necessarily have the same training mm -hmm. coming in mm -hmm. that the uh, that the Oberlin students have so I had to develop techniques to use rehearsal time so that so that students would be learning musicianship in everything that we did. It was a problem and that you needed a solution. I, I needed really. a solution. Yeah. So, and I think I've been fairly good at that in my mm -hmm. life. And uh, and I would like to see, you know, I think too often in choral music, uh, in the training process of choral music, in the schools and even in the colleges, that we uh, we train the the training process has been in a way to. Uh, to work towards the most beautiful performance rather than actually... In other words, the goal, the goal is the ensemble goal and performance. Mm -hmm. Okay, it, there's, it's very true that participating in an extraordinary performance is a life-changing experience yes. that we all know. Yes. There, I, I, I mean, I am totally understanding of that. But I do believe, though, that we need to match our commitment in education to the individual singer and giving them the skills of the musical language something besides rote te teaching so that they can figure out on their own so that they can use it the rest of their life sure because i see and i've seen in my life too many wonderful singers when i mean i have 30 pros in the pacific crowd and 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 still to this day, you'll have a wonderful singer that's been trained come in that that vocally has been trained magnificently, mm -hmm. and the voice is beautiful, but they have not in the system that they have been educated in, been given the proper musical training, so that they have they don't understand the musical page, mm -hmm. and they will come with a master's completed, and they still can't do a basic rhythmic exercise that I have chosen out of an eighth grade band manual that students have to do. And so there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. There's something wrong with that. There's a difference yeah. between feeling wonderful while you're performing and knowing why you're feeling wonderful. And knowing why, yeah. So so I that's something I'm still very, very interested in in my retirement. Uh, and how will that manifest itself? Will you be teaching individually? Will you be starting a foundation? Do you have a school? I mean, what... what well, my I, I do have... Uh, first of all, in that, no, I haven't started that. I'm just, that is right at the beginning. And what I'm doing is is working with people from ACDA to see if maybe we can do something about this because there's some wonderful, wonderful programs, mm -hmm. but there will be a very bad program right next to it in in schools and mm -hmm. universities. So I'm thinking if we do some kind of standards and take the wonderful programs and, and help the other people go into that 
realm of teaching that mm-hmm. the uh, the service organization could really help. My work, though, has been basically with Course America. And the other thing that I'm working very hard on right now uh, is with, and have been for the last 20 years uh, in my work on the board of Course America and my presence at the organization for several years is helping choral conductors deal with the orchestra. Um, our training of, of conductors in this country is really weird because if you are if if you are a singer and you say you want to be a conductor, the systems, the university systems lead you to the left, mm-hmm. to the choral conducting classes and everything that deals with with choral music. If you are an oboist or a violinist and say you're interested in being, being an, a conductor, you are t- taken to the, the right, route. to the orchestral right, route, and then there's a big barrier that comes down right between the right and the left, and they never see each other again. And I, and I believe the teaching of conducting should be a single art, where orchestral conductors need to have tremendous exposure uh, to the choir, and the choral conductors need to have exposure to the orchestra. Because how are the great choral orchestral masterworks going to survive if... Uh, if we can't conduct them mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. and so it, and so, one of my goals is to try to bring that together. And I'm, uh, I I've been there is a uh, John Alexander Fund, uh, an endowment that has been established through Course America, that is for doing our orchestral workshops for choral conductors. And I've been teaching them now. We've done them. We, we did one with Chicago Symphony. We did one. Uh, in Philadelphia, we uh, we did one at Manus in New York and Cincinnati, a, a lot of different places. Uh, how, is that, how is that funded? Through donation? Through donation. Yeah, I said I, I've started to fund to help it, but it yeah. just helps it. But it has to be done through donation. Through and course, of course America. And yes, and of course the students uh, um, pay tuition, but that doesn't begin to uh, sure. do it. But we just did a full week uh, workshop doing the Haydn Lord Nelson Mass and the Dorfle Requiem. Uh, in July at Cal State Fullerton, and it was a tremendous success. So this was the first time we'd done a full week of it. And we had, I think, 40 conductors uh, from around the country, young conductors who m- m- many of them just finished their doctorates and beginning jobs or they're still in, in their graduate work. But uh, it's really been good because the many of the, because the programs in the schools are so separated, many of them don't get any experience working with instruments at all. And yeah. so the idea is to is to let them learn that the violinist isn't somebody. I mean, we, we were concentrating on strings this summer. To let them learn that, that that violinist sitting there is not somebody you should fear. They are really people just as nice as the choir, and you can look them in the eye, and you can be honest and admit what you don't know about their instrument. They sure. don't expect you to know everything, mm-hmm. but you have to be honest, and you have to be musically honest, and you have to develop a technique that they can understand what you're doing. <laughs> so so that's, uh, that's a major thing. Thing I want to do now. I'm doing another one next summer, and I'm teaching uh, one in New York in January. Uh, so it's that's that that's something that I'm going to be doing a lot of. Keeps you busy. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for being on the show, John. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Thank you, Omar. Well, there you have it, folks. John Alexander. Thanks, John, for being on the show. I loved catching up, and I loved our chat. I hope you did too. If you like this show, please go to iTunes and rate, review, and subscribe to my podcast. It would mean the world to me. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week. And remember to always be kind 
Until next time. Stuff, you probably like to dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius. Get onto my show.